Hi, and welcome to this fresh teaching from Foundation Church Belfast. My name is David. I'm the pastor of Foundation Church, and we're continuing in our series through the book of Ezra, coming to Ezra chapter 8 in our series called Restoration. And today the theme we're looking at is the subject of trust, trust in God. Uh, something that we might reference and sing about and talk about as, uh, as Christians, as believers in Jesus quite a bit. But, you know, trust in God is, is part of the basic formula for what it is to be a Christian. In fact, any, any relationship is built on trust. Uh, the, the stronger the trust, the stronger the relationship. When the trust is broken, the relationship is damaged or destroyed. But the more trust we have in a relationship, the more power that relationship has, the more resilience it has, the more enriching it is for each person. And so therefore with God as well, the more we trust God as believers in Jesus, the more our lives will be enriched, the more we will demonstrate the fruit of trusting in God. Even it could be said that the more remarkable and influential our lives can be, the more that we trust God. And, and that applies to our church as well. The more we trust God, the more he can use us for his kingdom purposes. And so today we're going to be looking at this theme of trust. And we're going to be looking, first of all, at the basis of that trust. Secondly, the nature of trust. And thirdly, the results. What does it produce? So firstly, just now in this video, the basis of trust. And if you uh, want to read along, um, the link will be in the video in the video notes just now. But do pause the video. If you haven't already read Ezra chapter 8, read it now. It gives you a great overview of where we're heading today and, and what we're talking about. So anyway, the basis of our trust. And, and in many ways, this is building on what we've already been learning about God throughout this whole series. Uh, we have seen for, throughout Ezra that God stirs his people by his spirit. He equips them with all the resources that they need to restore worship and to gather again as his people. He forms them into restoration community. And so what we see here is further reasons further basis for our trust in God. And one of the interesting metaphors that, that we see uh, Ezra using um, here in this passage is the idea, the image of the hand of God. The hand of God is a, is a, is a very vivid image. And God doesn't actually have hands. God is spirit. Uh, the technical term is an anthropomorphism, sort of a human uh, characteristic to explain and understand something of God. And so the hand of God, it's this very vivid image and it explains to us, helps us understand what God is and, and, and what he does, what he achieves with his hands. And so we will learn about the basis of our trust in God the more we understand how Ezra uses this metaphor of the hand of God. First of all, a bit of background if you're new into this teaching. Uh, it, it, we've just met Ezra in the last chapter, Ezra chapter 7. He enters the scene and he is chosen by the Persian king to lead the second wave of exiles from Babylon, uh, now under control of the Persian authorities, and to lead them back to Jerusalem to continue God's work of restoration of the temple, of worship and of uh, Israelite society in general. 
And we saw last week that that, that uh, Ezra is a man who passionately pursues God. It says he put his heart into learning about God through his word, doing his word, and then teaching it to other people. And then we saw subsequent to that how he was influential in the very high levels of Persian society. He was influential in the royal courts and it was that influence that, that enabled the king to identify him and send him back, call him to lead. And we saw how he, uh, Ezra was a man full of courage as well. He applied courage to his calling and he uh, had faith in God, he trusted God. Uh, and so we'll see more of that today in this section. So chapter 8 is all about the details of the return of the second wave back to Jerusalem. And, and, and we're met with a problem here. Uh, he gathers the team just as they're about to leave, um, probably just something around a thousand people, not a lot compared to the first wave back in Ezra chapter 1. There's thousands of them, just maybe a th- up to a thousand here. Um, and he gathered the team, he did a head count, he saw all the families and the leaders of the various uh, tribes, but he, he realised that, that, that the, the entire community was lacking Levites. Uh, they were lacking a, a key group of people that were going to help make their mission successful. We'll see why that is uh, a bit later on. Um, but we see in verse 18 the first reference to the hand of God. He says, uh, the good hand of our God was on us. The good hand of our God was on us. God's hand is good. That's the first basis of our trust. God's hand is good. It's very important that we understand this because uh, it's not always immediately obvious that God's hand upon his people in his dealings with them is always good. Um, Sometimes we may understand that with our minds but we forget it in a in our inner being, uh, we, we allow ourselves to think that the hand of God, his actions, his, his purposes towards us are hard, he is, he is heavy on us, he's a disciplinary God. Um, and maybe sometimes he is, but God's hand, as we see here, and, and we'll, this will flesh out as we go on, God's hand is overwhelmingly good towards his people. Is overwhelmingly good. He is a fatherly God. He is a loving God and his hand upon them is good. I remember when my daughter Eliza was just a few weeks old and as all babies do, uh, she would cry, uh, particularly at night time when you would try and settle her for sleep. Uh, she would be very distressed and sometimes uh, I found this when I went into her room, rather than lifting her up and, and, and trying to swing her back to, to sleep or something, I would simply place my hand upon her back. And, and many times when I did that, she stopped crying instantly. It was great. Uh, she felt my hand upon her and immediately she settled. I can only assume that she was crying because she felt alone. She felt abandoned. It wasn't because she was hungry. It wasn't because she was cold. She was fine, but she felt alone. And so she felt that my hand upon her was a good hand. Uh, It was a comforting presence. It sort of communicated beyond words. It said, you're not alone. At a very basic level, you're, you're loved. This hand is good. I'm with you. Everything is okay. And at that moment when she felt that hand upon her, 
fear and distress just faded away. You see, God's hand is a good hand upon his people. He is a good God and his hand brings good. So that's the first use of the hand of God. God's hand is a good hand. But we see that idea appearing again in verse 22. Um, Fast forward a bit, it's a very risky trip that this uh, second wave of exiles are about to take. Um, But yet, for, for one reason or another, Ezra refuses an armed guard, an armed attachment to join with the, you know, the restoration community on their route back. Why did he do that? Well, he turns out he actually told the king of Persia, look, the hand of our God is on us for good on all who seek him. The hand of our God is for good for all who seek him. His hand is for good. We've just seen how his hand is good. He's a good God, but it's for good. It flows one to the other. A good God does good things, good actions, comes from his character. That's why we can trust him. It's the basis of our trust. Many years later, the Apostle Paul picks up this idea, this theme. He says, I am sure of this, that he who began, what? A good work in you will carry it through to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. He began a good work in you. He will carry it on. He will finish it off. Likewise, he picks up the theme in Ephesians 2. The Apostle Paul says, we, the people of God, are his workmanship. He's been working on us, created in Christ Jesus for good works for us to do. His works are good. He creates us and calls us to do good works for him. Yes, we are required to use courage and boldness from our perspective, sacrificing things, our time, our money, and all that. Yes, absolutely. But his work in us is good. His work with us is good because he is good. So the third use then of this term, the hand of God, we see later on again in the story in verse 31. They arrived in Jerusalem. It took them about four months, but they arrived. And he says, uh, Ezra writes in verse 31, the hand, again, of our God was on us and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy. The hand of our God was on us and we see that as he delivered us from the hands of our enemies. His hand is victorious. It is strong. It is stronger than the hands of the enemy. He overcomes. He he overpowers evil, as Ezra says. Why should we trust God? Because he delivers his people. His hand delivers. This is the, the standout feature of his hand upon us. And of course, we see this in the gospel of Jesus most clearly through through. Jesus, the hand of God, shows his deliverance, his victory most clearly in anything of his interactions with us. Sin and death and the devil are all taken down. They are all overpowered. They are all overcome through Jesus' work on the cross and through his resurrection. You know, through Jesus and because of Jesus, the Apostle Paul again can cry out, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O 
death, where is your sting? Because the hand of God has delivered us from death in Jesus Christ. He goes on to say in in another section, God made us alive with him, that is with Jesus, having forgiven our sins, victorious over sin. He disarmed the spiritually dark rulers and authorities, putting them to shame, triumphing over them in the cross. So there we have it, all for you, all through Jesus. Sin is destroyed, death is swallowed up, Satan is disarmed and triumphed over through the cross of Jesus Christ. Folks, this is the basis of our trust. This is why we trust the good hand that does good things, that delivers us. When we look at Jesus and we see these things come to us most clearly and obviously, look at the cross. Look at the empty grave. It's empty because he rose. And it's all for you. When, when, when you see them, you will see the hand of God upon you. You will see the deliverance. You'll see the goodness. You'll see the good works that he does. That is the basis of our trust. So we've just seen the basis of Ezra's trust in God. His hand is good for good. And his hand is victorious. It delivers his people. But now we're going to see how that operates in the lives of believers, the nature of trust. And we've seen how Ezra has this strong trust in the hand of God. And and we're going to understand um, how that looks in the lives of believers under the the heading ordinary and extraordinary trust. Those terms are not perfect, um, but they're the best I could come up with to describe this thing that we see here in Ezra chapter 8. So what do I mean? What is ordinary trust? Uh, Ordinary trust is trusting God and yet taking your own actions. It means applying wisdom, uh, taking practical steps. Where do I get that from? Let's see in verses 15 through to 20, as we've already seen, um, Ezra gathers his team together, the, the, the community that he's leading back home. He gathers them together on the outskirts of of Persian headquarters and uh, we've already seen uh, it's a much smaller number than the first group about 60 or so years maybe even 80 years earlier under the under the leadership of Zerubbabel but but here we have Ezra going through uh, the congregation doing a head count seeing who's who what do we have and he realizes and he writes I found there none of the sons of Levi no Levites and as we've been thinking already, the Levites were a key part of the, the team. Um, they, they provided an important role in the, in the practical aspects of, of worship of the people of Israel. Um, more particularly, they were needed in this circumstance to carry the sacred cargo um, back to Jerusalem. Uh, we saw last week that, that the Persian king... Um, handed many precious artifacts and articles um, to Ezra uh, to be used in the worship of Yahweh, the God of Israel, back in Jerusalem at the temple. Not to mention much gold and silver for the process of worship. And according to the law of Moses, and don't forget Ezra was an expert, he was a scholar in the law of Moses, this stuff should be carried by 
Levites. They are the chosen tribe to uh, aid and, and support the worship of Israel. This stuff, this gold and silver and merchandise was to be used for God. So Ezra said, look, look we've got to do this right. We've got to have some Levites. Now, it doesn't tell us why there were no Levites in that group. It's kind of encouraging to me, actually, as someone who's planted a church. You can cast the vision, you can pray, uh, you can see God's hand at work. But for some reason or other, uh, not everybody that you would love to have on your team will come with you. And that's okay. But perhaps in the situation here with these Levites, perhaps they they were comfortable where they are in Babylon. Okay, it's not ideal. This is not our homeland. But, you know, we're doing okay here. Um, the journey itself had much risk attached to it. There was much uncertainty about what lay ahead, and that did not fill them with excitement, rather with fear. Maybe they thought it was too much of a sacrifice to uproot themselves and, and their families and, and go and take a, take a flyer, take a risk. We don't know exactly why the Levites weren't there. But what did Ezra do in applying this sort of ordinary trust, if you like? Well, it says in verse 16, uh, he selected nine leading men, from among his own little community, as they were, uh, and two men of insight, two men of wisdom. So leading men and men of wisdom. And they sent them to this chap called Ido, uh, who was back in Babylon. And the idea with this little team, this detachment, uh, was to, to be sent to Ido, who was a leading, most likely a leading Levite among the exiles, and to try and persuade this man of influence to send Levites to advocate that Levites should go back to the homeland with Ezra uh, to assist in the restoration project. You know, of course, it sounds better, doesn't it, coming from a Levite himself to other Levites, um, you know, just more compelling. Anyway, Ezra, as we see here, takes practical steps to trusting in God. He, he chooses men of wisdom and diplomacy and, and skills of persuasion to go to Ido. You know, all this is about ordinary human interactions with one another but through it all he he says in verse 18 the good hand of our God was on us and as we see over 200 Levites came and eventually joined the crew so we see here that trust in God is not always fireworks Uh, it's not always spectacular at least on the surface trusting God in general is spectacular but but not always on the surface not always obvious at that time Sometimes that happens and that is awesome. But most often, trusting in God involves the stuff of ordinary life, our interactions with one another at work and family and social circles. It is our interactions with those inside the community of faith in the church, our interactions outside, without those outside the community of faith as we seek to share the good news. But most often, trust looks unremarkable. It is slow, it is organic, it is primarily relational. But here's the thing. Don't discount or minimise ordinary trust. Don't think to yourself, I'm not getting anything done here for God's kingdom. I'm not pulling off any remarkable jobs. In fact, I'm powerless because I can't operate in this gifting or that thing or I'm not like this person over here and what they're achieving for the kingdom. Don't think like that. In fact, it's important for us to understand right here. Just press, press pause on our own thinking just now and zone in. God builds his kingdom by ordinary people 
telling other people about Jesus and demonstrating his love in real life. That's how he does it. God builds his kingdom by ordinary people telling others about Jesus and demonstrating his love in real life. So the majority of what we do as church is ordinary. The majority of what we do at home, you know, as people is ordinary. But let's not think that ordinary means boring or ineffective or powerless because it doesn't. It is in these ordinary, these usual ways of trusting in God that play out most of the time. And as we see here, the hand of God, the good hand of God is through the ordinary ways that we trust God, apply wisdom in our human interactions with one another. And that is good and that is right. So the nature of trust is in these ordinary ways, these everyday ways, but also then nature of trust is extraordinary at times. Uh, all about launching out in faith. Um, we see that in verses 21 to 23 in Ezra chapter 8. As, as we've already been thinking, Ezra refused an armed escort, a detachment of Persian soldiers to travel with them. Um, we've seen why that is. He, he, he told the king of Persia, uh, no, 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 our God protects us. His, his hand is for good for those who follow him. Um, and, so, and so we are choosing to trust God. Thanks for your offer, but we'll say no. Um, they chose to trust God. Ezra chose to follow through. It came to a point when he had to follow through with what he said he believed, what he believed about God. It came to the point when they had to step across the line of faith effectively and walk out in trust. I don't know if you ever um, attended any of these really awful team building days. Um, they were big back in the 90s. I don't even know if they still do this, but um, there's one team building, one classic team building exercise, if you're going with your, your work colleagues or whatever, where one member of the team would often be blindfolded or shut their eyes and the rest of the team would gather behind him or her and sort of place out their arms like this and the, the person who with the eyes shut or the blindfold would sort of uh, say, right, I know you're behind me. Uh, we're on the same team here. I trust you. Um, but there's a moment when that person uh, then falls back into the arms of his team or her team. And the idea is that, that I, I trust you, I understand you're there, and you say you're there, and I, I, I do believe that, but I have to take a step to uh, test that that's real, uh, to fall back and, and, and know that you're going to catch me. And then the idea is that this builds trust among the team, which it never did. But anyway, that was the point. And... Uh, you know, but the idea is here, and, and, and why I'm saying this to you, is that Ezra and his community had to make choices and behave as if they are true and follow through with God. Uh, they had to really trust that God is who he said he is and then move forward with that in mind. Extraordinary faith, launching out in faith. So they proclaimed a fast, it says. They humbled themselves before God. They, they, they reminded themselves of who he is and who they are in relation to him. And, and they, they sought from God. They pleaded before God in prayer uh, for a safe journey. Get us there in one piece, O oh Lord. Then off they went. After they did that, off they went. They chose to trust. They chose to walk out in faith. They had no way, don't forget, they had no way of telling what might happen as soon as they left the territory of, of Persia. 
off they went. And don't forget also, they had riches on board. They had lots and lots of uh, precious artifacts, valuable articles that would have been um, easy pickings for any bandits or ambushes or whatever. There were also families, there were children, not to mention the fact that it was about a thousand mile round trip. It took them about four months. But it says in verse 23, God listened to our prayers. And in verse 32, fast forward a little bit, we came to Jerusalem. Extraordinary trust. They believed God, they trusted him, then they followed through and lived in the reality of their trust. Extraordinary and ordinary trust. So sometimes for us, trust is, is, is confessing things about God, it's believing about God, then it's using the skills, using the opportunities, the gifts that we are given to live for God in that ordinary, everyday process. Sometimes that's what trust looks like. Sometimes trust is taking hold of God's promises, it is fasting and praying, but then it's launching out into the unknown, saying, we're doing this for you, God. We don't know how it's going to go. Show your glory. You know, we might crash and burn, but we don't, we're with you and you're with us and you've got us. Then off we go. Amazing steps of faith. But you see, the nature of trust, and the thing that's really important here, the nature of trust is not either ordinary trust or extraordinary trust, and you just pick which one you are. You're either an ordinary person or an extraordinary person. That's not how it is. It's, it's, it's not either or, it's both and. Both ordinary trust and extraordinary trust at work, at play, in the lives of believers in Jesus and in the lives of the church, you know, in, in, the, in the communal aspects of the church. And of course, it depends on the, the situation and the, the, the season in life. It depends what God puts in front of you. It depends how the Holy Spirit guides you, guides us, the community, the gospel community, on mission. Sometimes God asks us to obey Him. Or he always asks us to obey Him and trust Him with the ordinary. Trust the fruit to Him. Trust the, the results to Him. Sometimes He calls us into to greater hope, uh, sorry, to, to greater faith. Uh, to do uh, remarkable things, to launch out, not knowing how things might turn out. But sometimes it's this and sometimes it's that. Sometimes it's extraordinary, sometimes it's ordinary. And so let me challenge you a little bit here before we finish this point. Are you, are you waiting for an extraordinary moment, an extraordinary thing uh, for God to ask you to trust him with? When in fact, God is calling you now to trust him in the ordinary. To be, to be contented with the ordinary, with the everyday life. Are you looking for the extraordinary when he's saying, no, no, trust me in the ordinary. Trust me with what you have now. Is that you? Or maybe the flip side. Maybe God is calling you to do something, to trust him in an extraordinary way. With, with a certain project or a, a certain calling? Is he calling you to uh, trust him to go out, not knowing how things might turn out, but, but exercising extraordinary trust for him? So we've seen in this study the basis of our trust, the hand of God. We've, we've seen the nature 
of trust through the life of Ezra, extraordinary and ordinary ways of trusting God, so to speak. Now we're going to finish with the result of that trust. What does it actually do? What does it produce? Well, it produces mission accomplished, the mission of God accomplished. When Ezra and those with him trusted God, the Levites who were missing rallied. 258 or so turned up, showed up, said, all right, I'm in. We're on board. Awesome. When, when Ezra and those with him trusted God, they reached their destination finally. God listened to their prayers and they arrived in Jerusalem. And it says he delivered them from the hands of their enemies and from ambushes on the way. And we came to Jerusalem, he says. When Ezra and those with him trusted God, they, after they had counted across the precious articles to the priests in Jerusalem, it says that that second wave, that second uh, group of the community gave sacrifices and offerings. They worshipped God. Mission accomplished. That's what happens when you trust God. His mission is accomplished. It is completed. And here's the reason. We've seen this. On the, on the basis of who God is, his hand upon them, they acted out in faith. They, they chose to trust. They behaved in that way. And that resulted in mission accomplished. They arrived. They worshipped. God's name was glorified. You know, we can know God's mission being accomplished among us when we likewise choose to trust him, choose to uh, move in faith and obedience. God's mission will be accomplished through those who trust in him. And as we, we think about that and sum up what we've been learning, I want to give one encouragement and one warning about this idea of trusting in God. First of all, the warning. Here it is. Doing God's work by trusting in him does not guarantee your mission will be accomplished, but it guarantees his mission is accomplished. You see, we're not trusting God to make our lives more awesome. That's what we get out of it. It might have that effect, but that's not primarily or at all why we're trusting in God. We trust in God according to his word. It's his work. It's his kingdom that we're involved in building. It's for his purposes. It's for his glory. And, and all of this, we get to participate with him. We, we, we were created for this wonderful work, this great job. We saw that in Ephesians 2.10. His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works for us to do. And that's better than anything that we can want on our own. We are created to participate and enjoy his work. But this is not primarily about making our own lives awesome by trusting in God. You know, God's mission, working and serving and trusting God, following him, may include and involve hardships and trials and, and suffering. It most likely will include disappointment. You will experience disappointments. You will experience, we will experience unanswered prayers, people not responding to the gospel, people that we serve and love and care for will turn and burn us every now and again. I'm saying this not to discourage you, please believe me, but I'm actually saying this to prevent you from becoming discouraged. 
because sometimes when we hear of God's mission being accomplished, some people mishear that. They, when we talk about all that, they, they, they think that God's mission accomplished means my prosperity is reached, my success. Uh, they think God's mission is about my comfort, the end of all of my suffering. And so when trials and hardships and sufferings come along, such people who mishear this talk of trusting in God, they're flawed. They're continually flawed. And they're, they're flawed because they're expecting everything to work out according to their own plans. They, they, they say to themselves, if I trust God, then he'll come through for me and sort out my own agenda and give me all of my dreams and make my life awesome. They effectively are coming to God and trusting in God, so they say, for what they can get from him, not for him himself. They, they're using God to get something from him. And because suffering and hardships are not part of their plans, they fall away. But, but all we need to do is look at Jesus and we can see what he went through. And when we do that, we can understand that trusting in God and obeying him and following him does not always lead to an easy and smooth and risk-free life. It says he sweated drops of blood in the Garden of Eden on the way as he contemplated going to the cross, the horror of the cross. And if that was true for Jesus, then it's going to be true for followers of Jesus. He tells them, take up your cross and follow me. There's a certain part of that that inevitably includes following after Jesus. Hardships and sufferings for him. That's the warning. And please don't mishear us or me when I say about mission accomplished. That's the warning. But here's the encouragement. Here's the encouragement. Uh, throughout this study and in this particular chapter, we have seen God at work uh, forming this restoration community. We've seen what he does. We've seen how he uses his power, his, his good hand, his fatherly love and care upon them. We've seen how he brings his people back to himself to, to, to re-engage them, to, to restore their worship. We've seen the great lengths that he goes to, to bring back the lost sheep to himself. And we see that most chiefly through giving his son, Jesus, in the gospel, dying on the cross and rising again. We've seen that. And here's the encouragement. Here's the encouragement. He still does this now. He still does this in the church. He is still accomplishing his mission among us. He uses people who, who deeply trust him, who are full of faith in him and, and his hand and, and what he wants to achieve. And he uses people to achieve his purposes, people like us. That's why we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. We want your kingdom to come, your will to be done. Use us, we trust you. We will go wherever you send us. And you see, when a group of people, like Foundation Church Belfast, when a group of people trust God, and I mean really trust that what we read and what we have experienced is true about him. And when we start acting out of that trust, then God uses us to achieve his 
mission accomplished. He will do. A community on mission for Jesus that is trusting him deeply can be used powerfully and mightily to build his kingdom, to prosper his church. We will see people coming to trust in Christ for the first time. We will see people uh, being served, the poor and the vulnerable being helped in the name of Jesus. We will see the church being built up. We will see the city being blessed when we trust, really trust in God and walk out that trust into everyday and extraordinary ways. So here's the challenge and we'll finish on this. The extent that we actually trust God and start behaving more and more as if it's true. The extent that we do that is the extent that we can be used in his plans to achieve his mission accomplished. Do you want to be used powerfully in the kingdom of God? I do. Then trust God.